Welcome back to Adventures with Uncle Frederick, our serial podcast for children. For younger kids, we recommend that you start with our Sophie and Sebastian stories. In this episode, Uncle Frederick tells a campfire story. Enjoy! This episode is sponsored by the Alabaster Toy Company, makers of action figures. Check out their life-sized mum and dad figures. Tired of having boring parents that don't play with you? Action, mum and dad are elite monster slayers with superhero powers. They won't make you clean your room. They much prefer hunting, zombies, and aliens. Each action mum and dad is programmed to say nice things about you while insulting your siblings. That's Action Mum and Dad by Alabaster Toys. And now I have to read some fine print really fast. Action figures may not be the exact size of your real parents, nor are they a perfect replacement. They do not sing lullabies, make pancakes, or bring you to basketball practices. Keep out of reach of small children. Do not dislodge eyeballs or pull out hair. Do not let Action Mum and Dad fight each other. Action Dad touch-up paint sold separately. Well, there you go. And now on to our story. There's nothing finer than to drive into a campground on a dusty gravel road under the tall evergreen trees and smell the fresh air, the campfire smoke, the pine needles and the sparse undergrowth. That's when you get the urge to jump out of the vehicle and run. There's the sound of laughter, of people playing games and chopping firewood, of children riding their bikes on little trails that crisscross the campground. There are barbecues sizzling and frisbees flying. Driving into a campground at the end of a long, dusty day is such a fine experience. Too bad you first have to set up the tent before you can have any real fun. Not to worry, said Uncle Frederick. When I borrowed this van, my friend gave me a book about camping. It's called The Poet's Guide to the Great Outdoors, and it has all kinds of helpful tips. He leafed through the book. For example, here's what it says to do if you run into a bear. If you meet a bear that's black, stand up and fight back. But should you meet a grizzly bear instead, then lie down and play dead. That seems like sensible advice, said Uncle Frederick. And here's the second verse. Make some noise, ring your bell, and bring some friends as well. That way, you'll avoid disaster by simply running faster. That's not very nice, said Iris. Who wrote this book? Uncle Frederick looked at the cover. A poet by the name of Elmer Daffodil. He's probably never actually gone camping, but he likes to rhyme. In a pinch, we can always use the book for toilet paper. Or to start a fire, suggested Owen. Good idea. Then they all got to work, and before long they had pitched two tents, chopped a bunch of firewood, hooked up the propane to the stove, and put out their camping chairs. The campsite wasn't large, and one of their neighbors had parked a massive camper right beside them. Every so often the generator would kick in, making a tremendous noise. How annoying is that, said Iris. That's not camping. That's like sleeping in a hotel. Hey, I heard that, said a voice. Out from behind a tree popped a young boy. Sorry, I was spying on you, he said. 
I was kind of bored. Is that your camper next to us? asked Iris. Yes, that's ours. It's just me and my dad. My name is Dow, by the way. Dow? asked Iris. Then she felt ashamed to look so surprised. Don't worry, said the boy. Everyone thinks it's a funny name. You see, my last name is Jones, and my dad is a financial investor, so he named me after one of the big stock markets, the Dow Jones. Never heard of it, said Iris, but I'm pleased to meet you. My name is Iris. Then she introduced Dow to everyone else, and Uncle Frederick said they should all go explore the campground while he made some supper and thought up a campfire story. When they came back a little while later, they also had some stories to tell. Did you know, said Katie, that they sell ice cream at the camp store? And, said Owen, they have canoes by the dock that you can rent. Wonderful, said Uncle Frederick. Also, added Iris, we saw that guy who passed us on the road earlier today, the man with the funny mustache who is a surveyor. I remember him, said Uncle Frederick. He works for do-gooders, but he seemed like a nasty piece of work. Well, guess what, said Iris. He has this equipment set up at the entrance to his campsite. There's a camera that swivels in all directions, and it follows you as you walk by. Yeah, it's really creepy, said Katie. Sounds like he's afraid of strangers, said Uncle Frederick. Maybe he's got something to hide. But let's not worry about him. Let's have some burgers and then a story. Would you like to join us, Dow? Sure, said Dow. He seemed very happy, and he explained that his dad preferred to stay inside the camper. He has to check on his investments all the time, just in case he might lose some money. He doesn't really like camping, but he's okay with it as long as he has a good internet connection and a comfy bed. Then they made a big, roaring fire, which took a long time as they started with the tiniest scraps of wood and a few pages from Elmer Daffodil's book. Dow Jones said that when his father made a fire, he just used a small flamethrower. He came across a good deal on eBay, so he bought a whole bunch. He ended up with a hundred flamethrowers, the kind they use in the army, and then he sold 99 of them for a higher price. I can get ours if you like. Owen said yes, but Uncle Frederick said that part of the fun was doing it from scratch. The sun set early in the mountains, and soon it was pitch black. Out came the marshmallows and the roasting sticks. You should have one, Uncle Frederick, said Katie. I'll pass, said Uncle Frederick. These things always get stuck in my beard. I read a book once, said Dow in which there were these people with beards, and they said it was great to get food stuck in your beard. That way you can take a nibble and have a little snack any time you get hungry. And so can the bears, joked Uncle Frederick. But now, without further ado, let me tell you a story. Are you ready? Ready, said Katie. I even have my favorite blankie. Aren't you getting a little too old for that? asked Owen. Never too old for getting comfy, said Uncle Frederick. He pretended to snuggle his big bushy beard. Katie laughed. 
That just looks itchy. Speaking of itchy, I'm just itching to tell you this story. This is a true story, as all the best stories are. That's what you always say, said Iris. It's as true as you want it to be, said Uncle Frederick. What's it about? asked Owen. Hmm, let me see. Love? Race cars? Unicorns? Medieval manuscripts? Is there anything else you would like me to add? How about some bloodshed? said Owen, jokingly. We can do that, said Uncle Frederick. Anything else? How about a good message? suggested Iris. She had learned in school that all good stories have a clear moral, such as that bullying is mean, that you should avoid getting stuck on a deserted island, and that democracy is the safest form of government. All right, said Uncle Frederick. The moral of this story is that falling in love is a bit like going fishing. When you cast your line, you'll never know if you'll hook a big catch or just some old shoe. Iris laughed. That's not a moral. That's a simile. But go on, I can tell you haven't been in school for a while. All right, said Uncle Frederick. I used to have a friend, a fellow by the name of Gordon. Gordon Klotzendorf. As you can imagine, it always pained him to have his name read off on the first day of classes. He was a nice guy and an excellent musician. He played second violin in the university orchestra. But then that summed him up pretty well. He was always playing second fiddle, especially with the ladies. No girls paid him any attention. They all thought the same thing. Cute freckles, nice brown eyes, if you can look past the glasses. But he looks a little wimpy, too skinny, like dating a broomstick. Also, cheap clothes, a little pale, and there's just something slightly off with his nose. It's not a bad nose, it's just too large for his face. Gordon was sitting in Professor Emerald Greenleaf's history class, wondering if he should get plastic surgery. Would it make any difference, he wondered, if my nose was just slightly smaller, just a tad, a couple of millimeters? Would it make any difference for Chloe, for instance? He glanced over to his right, where the beautiful Chloe sat, looking dreamily into the distance. Gordon was in love with Chloe. He had never said a word to her, and she paid him no attention, but he was definitely in love. Unfortunately, so was the young man sitting directly in front of Chloe. His name was Brock Spencer, and he liked to lean back every so often and yawn and flex his muscles and pass her a note. Brock was on the basketball team, Chloe was on the volleyball team, and it seemed only natural to Gordon that two accomplished athletes should keep a channel of communication open at all times. He had no idea what Brock Spencer actually wrote, whether a love poem about how much he enjoyed seeing her spike that ball over the net, or some joke about how boring their teacher really was. Gordon tuned back into the lecture. Professor Greenleaf was still going on about the legend of the unicorn. The professor often sounded like he was part of a nature documentary. The unicorn 
said Professor Greenleaf. The most elusive animal on earth. Scholars have been on the hunt for the unicorn for centuries. Some have given up all hope of ever spotting this fabled animal. The unicorn is a symbol of chastity, of Christ, of adventure and questing. But is it only a legend, or could it possibly be real? Professor Greenleaf paused dramatically. Elusive, thought Gordon. That's a good word for Chloe. She's hard to get, just like the unicorn. However, continued Professor Greenleaf, there are some who feel that the unicorn is based on reported sightings of a real animal. Can anyone guess which creature might have inspired the legend of the unicorn? Professor Greenleaf raised his eyebrows, held his suspenders, and looked around quizzically. Unfortunately, the professor had already pressed the button for the next slide, and there behind him projected on the screen was a gigantic photo of a rhinoceros. Brock Spencer put up his hand. Yes, Brock, said Professor Greenleaf. I don't know, said Brock. I'm just guessing, but I feel it's probably a rhino. Well done, said Professor Greenleaf. Then he turned around and sighed. Everyone in the class broke out in laughter, and Brock flexed his muscles. Very funny, said Professor Emerald Greenleaf. And now I will assign you all your presentation topics. Brock, you can do the Crusades, since you're such a heroic fellow. Chloe, perhaps you can tackle witchcraft. And does anyone want to do courtly love? Gordon, who had been dreaming about love, put up his hand automatically. Then he blushed when he realized what he had volunteered for. Thank you, Mr. Klotzendorf, and since you're so eager, we'll have you go first. Please be ready to present in two weeks. That's it for today. Class is over. I have to go back to writing my book on the hunt for the unicorn. Gordon slumped out of the classroom. This was going to be embarrassing, he decided. What was he going to say about the history of love? Perhaps he should just drop the class and move on. I talked to him later that day, when we had a drink in the student lounge. Freddy, what am I going to do? he whimpered. I said, stop whimpering for a start. You're a great guy. There is your nose, of course, but that didn't stop Cyrano the Bergerac. Cyrano who? Cyrano the Bergerac, famous lover, big nose. And how did that story end? Not well, but that's not the point. He was great with words, and he never gave up. And neither will I, shouted Gordon. No Klotzendorf has ever backed down from a challenge. He slammed his mug on the table, and other people looked over curiously. But my good friend Gordon Klotzendorf was not drunk at all. He rushed off to the library and started researching the history of courtly love. He poured himself into this project. He even visited the rare book room 
which contained several very old medieval manuscripts. When the day of his presentation came, Gordon was nervous. He had to change his shirt because he was sweating. He quickly glanced through a guide on public speaking that he had taken out from the library. It had a lot of helpful tips, such as Pretend that you're talking to a room full of chickens and you'll break out into a smile. Or, when you make hand gestures, extend your arms as if you're about to embrace your beloved, not your mother-in-law. Easier said than done, thought Gordon. But he was ready. Today, said Professor Greenleaf, we can look forward to a presentation by Mr. Klatzendorf on the history of love. And not just any love, but courtly love. Well, Gordon, the stage is yours. Thank you, said Gordon. He glanced around the room. Everyone looked bored or tired. Brock was looking at his phone. Chloe was resting her chin on her hand. A most attractive posture, Gordon decided. Well, Gordon, asked Professor Greenleaf, are you going to start or are you done already? Right, said Gordon, courtly love. Now, there's a lot of history to cover, but first I just wanted to talk about the feeling itself. Imagine you're in love with someone. You've admired them from a distance. You can't stop thinking about this person. You're constantly making up clever things to say to her, but you're too scared to actually go up and say it. So you worship her from afar. You do nice things for her. In fact, you treat everyone a little better. You show courtliness and kindness to people around you. You walk a little straighter, and you do whatever you can to impress her. Still, she doesn't notice, so you send her secret messages. You might write a poem or request the DJ to play a song for her on the radio. That is the beginning of courtly love. Gordon paused. It looked like he had struck a nerve. Quite a few students were paying attention. Even the video gamers at the back of the classroom looked up. Courtly love, continued Gordon, is the most powerful emotion in the world. It is impossible to put into words. It's a desire to scale the tallest mountains, to cross the stormiest seas, to do whatever it takes to reach one's beloved. There are some men, he looked Brock straight in the eyes, who are only in it for a quick thrill, who care more about themselves and how good they would look with a girl on their arm. They see a woman as a trophy, as something you can win by playing sports. But the true courtly lover is not concerned with winning. The true courtly lover is willing to die for love. Gordon paused again. He imagined Brock turning into a chicken, fluttering and clucking through the classroom. Everyone was listening closely now. Love is a universal feeling, and just talking about it gets people excited. Chloe noticed that even though Gordon had quite a large nose, he also had cute freckles and the most marvelous brown eyes. Some people might think him skinny, she thought, but he's wiry, he's slender, he's sensitive. 
Then Gordon played a courtly love song on his violin, and he might as well have been playing on Chloe's heartstrings. She noticed him for the first time, and although she remained uncommitted, he was at least an option. Nice guy, she thought. Gordon was far from done, however. He had saved something special for last. In my research, he said, I have made a startling discovery. It concerns the connection between courtly love and unicorns. Professor Greenleaf tried to look unconcerned. He brushed some crumbs off his suit jacket. I was digging around in the rare book room to make sure I hadn't missed anything important. I opened a very old book called The Art of Courtly Love by some chap named Andrew. Uh, you mean Andrew the chaplain, corrected Professor Greenleaf. That's it, said Gordon. Now, in the back of Andrew the chaplain's book, I found an inserted page covered with gold filigree and marginal illustrations. I only have a photo of it on the screen. The librarian wouldn't let me take home the original. The class looked up to see the photo. If you look carefully, you'll see what looks like a unicorn. It's hard to see the horn because it's kind of faded, but the librarian assures me that this is most likely a unicorn. Gordon looked over to Professor Greenleaf. The professor had a peculiar habit of twitching his ears whenever he got excited. Gordon detected a significant tremor in the left ear. He carried on. The text on this page is also very interesting. With the help of the librarian, I have been able to decipher some of the words. The end appears to read as follows. In the darkest forests wild, you will find a creature mild, so elusive and so rare, one can only dream and stare. And it will not e'er come near, for it lives in greatest fear, and it wanders all forlorn, for it is a... Gordon paused. The last word is a blank. Though one suspects... He had extended his arms as if he was about to embrace someone. One suspects, concluded Professor Greenleaf, who wanted some of the glory, one suspects it is a unicorn. What a marvelous discovery! Perfect for my book! It is the missing link! Don't you see? The unicorn represents a girl that some poor boy has fallen in love with. Then Professor Greenleaf suddenly realized he was getting carried away. He said quickly, Well done, Gordon! A plus for your presentation! Class is dismissed! I have to take a closer look at this manuscript. As everyone filed out of the classroom, Chloe looked impressed. But Brock whispered, What a show-off! Who cares about unicorns anyway? As time went on, Chloe became more interested in my friend Gordon, and he told me he wanted to ask her out for a date. The trouble, said Gordon, is that I just cannot muster the courage to ask the fateful question. I only have one shot at this. What if I get the timing wrong? My dear friend, I said, it's not a question of when you ask, but how you ask. Think of how the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy. 
It took a bit of effort, but even if they had waited another month, D-Day would have happened. I'm not so sure about that, said Gordon. I read that the Germans were quite surprised that the Allies happened to attack just then. The weather wasn't great, and the seas were choppy. My point exactly, I said. They succeeded in the worst of conditions, so they would have had an easy time on a good day. You would make a lousy historian, said Gordon. And you will make a lousy lover, unless you get your act together. As you can probably tell, said Uncle Frederick to the kids, when you're talking to a person in love, you can tell them pretty much anything. They are ready to fly to the moon if necessary. They just need someone to start the countdown. I will ask her on Friday, said Gordon, after class. That Thursday evening, Gordon was invited to a special function organized by Professor Greenleaf. The professor had invited a number of scholars to examine Gordon's amazing discovery, the medieval poem. Professor Greenleaf had published an article explaining his theory that the last word was likely missing on purpose. I strongly believe, he wrote, that the original author was writing in code. The word unicorn is there, but it will remain invisible unless one were to sprinkle the blood of a unicorn on the page, smear it around, and thus make the letters magically appear. However, since unicorn sightings are extremely rare, it seems highly unlikely that we will be able to test this amazing hypothesis. Professor Greenleaf's article had caused a sensation, and he was in a mood to celebrate. Thanks to you, Gordon, he said. My book on the unicorn will make me famous. Come join us and I'll buy you a drink. So Gordon put on his suit and tie and set off to the library, where the manuscript was kept in a glass case. On the way, he came across Brock Spencer, who was hanging out with his basketball buddies. They were leaning against their fancy cars, talking about which girls they were going to take to the athlete's banquet. Gordon froze in fear. He knew exactly who Brock would be inviting. How much time did he have? Should he be moving up the date for D-Day? Was it time to storm the beaches of Normandy? Gordon quickened his steps. He knew Chloe had a volleyball practice tonight. What if Brock asked her afterwards? He had to beat him to it. But he couldn't skip out of Professor Greenleaf's event. What was he to do? And that's part one of Uncle Frederick's story. Tune in next month to find out what happened to Gordon Klotzendorf. Just a quick note as well that this month we're skipping our poetry episode. It's just been too busy. But if you would still like to submit a limerick, then be sure to do so. Till next time.